Thank you, thank you for that offering music. And there's the grand finale right there. <clears throat> Multi-talented. That was awesome. We appreciate that. We appreciate our time of worship as well. Um, well, it's good to see everybody here. And Ken was talking about spring has sprung. It was 33 degrees this morning in our house. I don't know what time you guys got up, but early this morning was uh, 33. So that's still pretty chilly, but I think it's promised to get in the 70s today. So I think he's probably right. Well, um, just a few in-house things before I get started on the sermon. Uh, one is, this is just kind of random, but something I wanted to bring up about worship. If you've been here, you'll notice that our worship during our time of praise, that the whole congregation stands up and they stand up the whole time when we sing all of our songs. And uh, sometimes that can present a problem to those that are not able for whatever reason, got a bum knee or just sore, can't stand up the whole time. Sometimes it means they are not able to see the lyrics. Uh, so I think about this. Why do we stand the whole time during our worship? A lot of churches, you know, you sit for this song and you stand for this one. Um, there is no particular reason. It's not a church policy that you have to stand the whole time through every worship song. It's something that years and years ago, <clears throat> the congregation just in one spirit began to do. Uh, I think the worship times just were so meaningful that people stood up uh, in their expression of celebrating God and never sat back down until the final note of the song. And have we've just been doing that ever since. So um, if you're one of those that are in a season that you find it difficult to stand that whole time, we don't want it to be intimidating for you. We have this uh, section over here specifically designated our pool of Siloam. Uh, for the, the wounded um, and the weary over here. So, um, yeah, if, if you're having trouble seeing the lyrics, then please maybe sit over in this section or find a place that you'll be able to see, see the lyrics. We certainly understand it's not, a, uh, it's not a test of your faith to see if you can, in great pain, stand through every song. Um, so that's just kind of a random thing I wanted to throw out there. And then the other in-house item is just to announce again on May 1st, Sunday after our fellowship meal, we're going to have our first what we're calling an inform and connect meeting for the church. And it is an opportunity for you to be heard. Um, we've never done this before, so I don't know exactly what it's going to be like. But I'm not coming prepared to share a whole lot. It is an opportunity for you to share some things. And where that's coming from is, unfortunately, we've heard over the years, some people say, you know, I just don't feel connected. I don't feel connected to New Covenant Fellowship. I don't feel a part. And the people that we hear saying that sometimes, I think to myself, you are such a part. You are such an important part. How can you not feel a part? So just in an effort, if that's you or if you have something you want to share, it's not a gripe session. Um, it's not an opportunity for this to turn into a gripe session. It's just an opportunity if, if you have some questions, if you have some things that you want to share. We want to give you that pl platform so that you feel informed and connected. So that is that. Now, you may notice in your bulletins that <clears throat> we're supposed to be in the book of Nehemiah talking about the right kind of anger. And Nehemiah does... Uh, get pretty hot and bothered over some things 
in this final chapter of the book of Nehemiah. But having gone to a pastor's conference this past week, I'm just not angry enough to preach that sermon this morning. I'm, I'm too happy. So we're going to save that for next time. And what I want to do this morning is just share with you a little bit about the conference that I went to. Uh, because you have really uh, deeply invested in me. You invested in that time that I had away. And a lot of you have already asked me, how was it? We've been praying for you, and I so much appreciate that. So I think since you've invested so richly in me, I just it's only right that I share some things about this conference. And then um, hopefully we'll have enough time to share. Um, I intend to share a scripture, some scriptures with you as well. But as you know, most of you know, I left last Monday afternoon and returned this past Friday afternoon. And I attended a pastor's conference that's uh, called T4G, which is short for Together for the Gospel. It was hosted in Louisville, Kentucky, right where the Kentucky Derby is also hosted. Um, and it was in what they call the KFC, imagine that, Kentucky Fried Chicken, the KFC Yum Center. Um, and Yum is their brand new foods of KFC and Taco Bell. They own these different restaurants. Uh, and so it was in the KFC Yum Center. And just FYI, I did not eat a single piece of chicken. Or uh, a chicken strip or nugget or anything like that. The whole time I was there, if you can imagine. But T4G, Together for the Gospel. Let me just, I'm going to read something that's quoted out of the little booklet that they hand out. What is Together for the Gospel? Why would they entitle that? And what is that all about? <clears throat> well, the little booklet says, What began as a friendship between four pastors from across denominational Traditions has burgeoned into a biennial conference for thousands of pastors and church leaders who, for all their differences, are committed to standing together for the main thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ. T4G has sought to reaffirm and reiterate the central doctrine of the Christian faith and to encourage local churches around the world to do the same. And I believe... Seventeen countries were represented um, at the conference this time. Goes on about ten years. Well, ten years ago, at the inaugural T4G conference, we adopted a series of theological positions in the form of affirmations and denials. We are convinced, we wrote, that the gospel of Jesus Christ has been misrepresented, misunderstood, and marginalized in many churches and among many who claim the name of Christ. So ten years ago. As false gospels circulate and pastors are tempted to cow to cultural pressures, we remain convinced that the church is in a moment of spiritual crises. Ten years on, buoyed by Christ's promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, we remain convinced of the need for a full and gladdening recovery of the gospel in the church. Ten years on, by God's grace, we are still here standing together for the gospel. So that's what it's all about. And uh, if my memory serves me correctly, with a little help from another memory, Corky's, we actually, uh, three men from this church, went to the very first T4G conference in Kentucky. That was Corky and Scotty and myself uh, in 2006. And back then, we met in the Galt House, which is just a big hotel. And we 
met in the conference center, kind of in the basement area. And I want to say maybe there was 2,000 people during that first conference. There were 10,000 men, and mostly men, some women there this time. And basically it was sold out. They packed as many of us as they could into this stadium uh, that could have seats to see the platform because you can't sit behind them like you could in a basketball game. It was like a basketball arena. It had stadium seating. People were all the way up in the very top sections. Um, it took a lot of time just to go anywhere with all those people. There were lots and lots of lines. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that the conference loves to do is to give free books. Now, they do have a bookstore where you can buy books. But they also give you free books, I think, to hook and bait you to come back every two years. And I just confess last, I think it was last Sunday, I have a love for books. Perhaps even too much of a love for books. So I, I came home with all these books and they were all free. Uh, I broke my little carry-on suitcase, bringing these home. The handle popped out because they were so heavy. But this is just good reading that these four guys, and I'll introduce them to you in a second, some books that they recommend they wanted to put in pastors' hands for their ministries, understanding the Great Commission, churches in hard places, meaning how to reach um, those in poverty, planting churches in places like that. Some of them are, are books that have been around for a long time. Thoughts for Young Men, J.C. Ryle. Many of you have that on your shelf. The Simplicity in Preaching, J.C. Ryle. Uh, Al Mohler, We Will Not Be Silent About the Cultural Battles that we're facing today, discipling by Mark Dever, and it just goes on and on. Probably my favorite is this huge commentary on the Psalms. And they, and they even said, of, of all things, and these are intellectual guys, they said, look, you don't even have to read the commentary part. I know you're pressed for time, but read the devotional notes behind at the end of the chapters, behind the commentaries. That's where the real meat is. So I'm really looking forward to reading uh, perusing a lot of those books. <clears throat> by the way, I recommend books by any of those speakers. The speakers that cross denominational lines were Legan Duncan, and he's a Presbyterian, diehard Presbyterian, and, and Chancellor now of Reformed Theological Seminary, I think in Jackson, Mississippi. Brilliant man. Uh, so he's a Presbyterian. Al Moeller, who's a Baptist and president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Mark Dever, many of you have heard of him, uh, pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in the Washington area. And then the fourth guy was C.J. Mahaney, um, who leads Sovereign Grace Ministries. These are four different personalities. They really are. Uh, they don't agree on everything. They cut, you know, they cut on each other sometimes about infant baptism versus immersion and things like this. But they just saw what was happening in the churches, were concerned about it. They purposed to become friends and to focus on the main thing and then to take that friendship and their desire for Christ to be glorified and, and, and the scriptures to stay pure and true and, and try to pass that on to as many pastors that are willing to come to these conferences. Um, some of the speakers that were there this time and, and have been there most years a matter of fact, the first year we went, John MacArthur spoke, and he had been in that. He had been a pastor for 40 years in the same church. Here I go to my second conference 10 years later, and he spoke again, and now he's been a pastor in the same church for 50 years. 
some of the other speakers. Uh, R.C. Sproul couldn't make it because of health reasons. Keep him in your prayers. But um, Kevin DeYoung, these are names hopefully that you're familiar with. You should be familiar with these names. Kevin DeYoung, uh, Matt Chandler, and David Platt. These are newer guys, kind of in the evangelical circles. Have never heard them before. Um, good speakers. Um, John Piper preached an excellent sermon. Of course, the four speakers as well. And uh, Tabidi Antawali. I can't really pronounce his last name. But there's, these are just kind of giants in it right now. These are men that God are using, is using very, very specifically and powerfully in the church today in the hearts of a lot of young pastors. So I had a wonderful time there, and I really appreciate, appreciate the opportunity to go. Uh, what did I bring home from the conference? Many of you have asked me, how was it? Did you enjoy it? I, I did enjoy it. The best way I can describe what I brought home from that conference is just, I don't know how God did it, but it's like this calming resolve to just just keep preaching the gospel. Just keep sharing God's word. I think there comes a time, if not many times, multiple times in any minister's life, but in a pastor's life where they ask themselves, the question, am I still supposed to be doing this? Am I still fruitful, Lord? Is this still your expectation and calling upon my life? Are you still using me? And I have asked that question. And I shared with you from the pulpit that last year was very, very difficult for me. And this year is a little better, praise God. But I'm still coming out. I hope I'm coming out of just a, a really... Hard time of feeling very ineffective and unfruitful, very aware of that. And so I've had thoughts and, you know, I, I look at the circumstances and what's going on. I look at my own life and I've been questioning, you know, God, is it time for me to move on? Um, and I, I want you to know that uh, I am open to that idea at any time. This is not my pulpit. This is God's pulpit. And I hope it doesn't sound uncaring but I would gladly step aside at any time that God wanted to put somebody else in this place because he's the one that calls and raises up servants. And he, he raises people and he lowers people, and it's his business to do that. So I've had those questions. And uh, in, my, in my seeking the Lord, I've come, my conclusion coming back from this conference is that all of the wondering and the questions and any confusion has all been fabricated in my mind. None of it came from God. You know, and so when I listen to myself, I'm like, ah, you know, is, am I done here? Have I done? Am I just played out? But what God, if I can be so bold to say whatever God is speaking to my heart, it is just keep going. Just keep going. And a reaffirmation in that. And so I think this conference helped me to see just the, the true need today for pastors. Just pastors and churches that are willing to... Uh, wife's up here crying again, so... <laughs> that are willing to just be faithful... In, in uh, presenting God's word. I mean, that's how we grow. That's how we mature. That's where God has always been found. And 
people have been introduced to God. It's through the power of the Spirit, through the preaching and the proclamation of God's Word. Just that steady delivery of the Word of God. Just a good reminder not to cow to the pressures. And some, one of the speakers, Mark Dever, talked about the importance of this. Not to cow to the pressures of, of uh, success and of feeling like you have to be a pastor that's in the spotlight. Because that's the thing to do now. You need a mega church. You need to be in the spotlight. You need to have a voice, a radio program. You need to be published. That's what it means to be a pastor today. Uh, and those things happen. There are exceptional people and speakers and churches and those things do happen. But when you look at what Christ says about ministry and how does it work from Jesus's mouth, he says it's slow and steady, slow and steady. It's like that yeast. You don't see immediate results. It's like that mustard seed. It's 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 surprisingly slow and steady, but it's that true growth. It's not the little spurts. That come and you feel like you've changed and you have this visible evidence of something wonderful, but it's not a true change. As I think as I was thinking about this this morning, it's kind of like dieting. We can go on a crash diet and maybe starve ourselves for however many days and lose 5, 10, 15 pounds and look great. But that's not our true weight. As soon as we get back, you can't live life like that. As soon as you get back into your normal routine, you're going to go back to your true self and your and your true weight. So that's what scripture teaches about growth. It was a great reminder. And I was reminded uh, of Jesus and how he just steadily proclaimed God's word. And, you know, a whole lot more people walked away from Jesus than followed Jesus. And Jesus did not change his message just to get more followers, because getting more followers is not what the kingdom is about. What he wanted is true Followers, true conversions. And that comes through the faithful preaching and proclamation of God's word and discipleship. A pastor's main priority is to deliver the word of God. Uh, whenever I ask questions at our leadership meeting or I get confused or I ask for prayer, uh, these guys tell me just... Just keep preaching the word. Just keep preaching the word. That's what we want you to do, Paul. Just keep preaching the word. So that's what I hear from every angle. And I really appreciate that. And that's where our growth and our maturity comes from. So pastors uh, feed the sheep. And that's what Jesus told Peter to feed my sheep. Um, So we. We put it out there for you. We prepare the meal. We put it out there for you. It's your responsibility to have the ears to hear. It's your responsibility to have the eyes to see. It's your responsibility to come hungry and decide if you want to be spiritually nourished or not. Or decide what your life is all about. But it is my responsibility and a pastor's responsibility to provide the meal. I went to this conference really uh, convinced that I was at the point in my spiritual life. Where I just needed not just a little nudge or a little inspiration. I needed an encounter. I needed just God to do something really big. That's that's what I was praying for. And I told God and I shared that with Lisa. And I said, oh, you know, I don't just need some inspiration. I need an encounter. And I was convinced that's what I needed. I didn't get that. God decided that's not what you need, Paul. I just got this this 
slow, this comforting, calming assurance of just just proclaim the word of God. That's what the king God calls us to growth. Just keep proclaiming the word of God. And so I return with this deeper resolve to to proclaim God's word, to work harder at that, to uh, proclaim it more accurately, to proclaim it more clearly and more faithfully. Uh, That's where God is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of salvation for sinners, the message of victory over sin, the message that Christ is here and Christ will come again, the message that Christ abides in us and will be with us forever. And you just can't add to that. That's it. So if I came, that's basically what I came home with. Uh, well, what was the conference about? Um, the conference did have a theme. So for the rest of the time this morning, I want to talk to you about the theme of the conference. But rather than just diving right in, I want to introduce the theme of the conference by beginning with a story, a true story. And the area, the era is the mid-1500s, just on the heels of Martin Luther and his nailing the 95 Theses on the uh, door of Wittenberg. And just before the time of the Puritans, for the most part, where they really had a heart to purge the church, um, the Reformed church from Catholic influence. So it's sandwiched right around in that era. It is specifically in the years of the reign of Mary I, who you may know of as Bloody Mary, who became known as Bloody Mary for good reason. Because she liked to uh, shed blood on certain people that did not agree with her. So, in this story, there's a man. And this man is being led. He's being led from a prison to a certain place in town. In the town of Smithfield. And the people have gathered on both sides of the street To witness this man being led to a certain place. And this man has been in prison. First he was held under house arrest. And then later thrown into a literal prison for many months to spend time with uh, murders and thieves. Uh, He is a preacher. And he was ordained in the Catholic Church. And used to preach in the Catholic Church. But then something happened in his life. And the something that happened in his life was that he was introduced to a man by the name of William Tyndale. And if you know your church history, you know how important the figure William Tyndale was. He was instrumental in getting the Bible into the English, translating the Bible from Latin and other uh, translations into English so that the people could have the Bible in their own language, which they were not allowed to have and they were not allowed to do. According to the church at that time, it was to only be in Latin. And so at risk to his life, he believed so firmly in the idea of people being able to read God's word and have God's word and understand it in their own language that he literally gave his life for that pursuit. He was strangled 
dispersed and then burned for his efforts in that area. Well, this man that is walking down this street met William Tyndale and he shared the gospel with him. And this man became a convert, a true convert, and, be, and changed denominations, basically, uh, renounced the Catholic Church and the vows that he made to be celibate. He picks up a wife, which a lot of these guys during the Reformation age did. Like, you mean I can be a minister and be married? Uh, let's do this thing. And so they would find wives, Martin Luther as well. And he became a powerful minister in the uh, church of basically the Church of England at that time. The uh, so this man is goes by the name of John Rogers. John Rogers is making his way. He's actually being led to this place in this town because he preached against the Catholic Church and against the doctrines, many of the doctrines of that day. Uh, Mary, the first, saw herself as a protector of the Catholic Church and forbid this and even sentenced people to death for preaching against the practices of the church. He had been warned that his life was in danger if he continued to preach the gospel. And he did not heed those warnings uh, that's why he is surrounded by such a crowd, because people are wondering this. In fact, you'll, I'm going to quote, I believe, Fox's Book of Martyrs. He was the first martyr during this transitional period. What's going to happen to ministers that no longer ascribe to the Catholic Church, but now to the Church of England or are a part of this Reformation? What is the queen going to do to them? How mean is she going to be? How illegal is it going to be? And so... He was the first one and also, and what are pastors or anybody, how are they going to act to this? Will they stand fast? Will they, will they recant? What, what kind of precedent is going to be set during this transition of the faith? And that's what got him arrested. So he's walking to his death. There is a stake waiting for him to be tied to and wood, lots of wood around it for him to be Burned. Before he made this walk, he was given an opportunity to recant of his teachings. He said basically, no thanks. Uh, he exhorted the people to beware of the, I quote, pestilence of popery, idolatry, and superstition. And he was part of the thrust to reform people back to what God says in his word and away from what man says and Traditions. Uh, before he made his walk through the town, he asked the sheriff, can I please just have a final word with my wife? And he was denied that request. And so as he walks down the street with people on both sides, on one side of the street is his wife and his ten children. One of them still on her chest and one of them in her tummy that he never got to see. Let me just describe it to you as Fox's Book of Martyrs does. Many of you probably have that book. And there's some funny names in here, but remember the era. Woodruff, one of the sheriffs, first came to Mr. Rogers, asked him if he would revoke his abominable doctrine and the evil opinion of the sacrament of the altar. Uh, the sacrament of the altar is that the Catholic Church 
believes in transubstantiation, which when they take the Lord's Supper and you have the bread and the wine, it literally and substantially transforms into the blood and body of Christ. Whereas um, Mr. Rogers says that's not scriptural and gave proof for that. So he was speaking against the opinion of the sacrament of the altar. He answered that which I have preached, I will seal with my blood. Then Mr. Woodruff said, thou art a heretic. And Rogers responds with, well, that'll be known. That'll come to light at the day of judgment. Well, then, Mr. Woodruff says, I will never pray for thee. And Mr. Rogers says, but I will pray for you. And so he was brought that same day, the 4th of February, by the sheriffs, um, saying the psalm of misery as he is walking and as he is being tied to the stake is uh, he is reciting a psalm that he has memorized all the people wonderfully rejoicing in his constancy with great praises and thanks to God for the same. And there in the presence of people that were around uh, some big wigs and sheriffs and so forth and a great number of people, he was burnt to ashes, washing his hands in the flame as he was burning a little before his burning. His pardon was brought if he would recant. He utterly refused. He was the first martyr of all the blessed company that suffered under Queen Mary's time that gave first adventure upon the fire. And there were nearly 300 people, including women. Uh, his wife and children being 11 in number, 10 able to go, um, met by the way. And to his sorrowful sight of his own flesh and blood could nothing move him, but that he constantly and cheerfully took his death with wonderful patience in the defense and quarrel of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So why start with this story? The theme of this year's conference was we are Protestant. And the idea is a reminder that in, there's a sense in which the, the Reformation is not over because a lot of people think, well, we, we won't think it's in the past. And the reason they want to remind us that in, technically it is not over is because uh, the, the teachings, most of the teachings that were taught by the Catholic Church in that day are still taught all basically word for word today. It wasn't a, wasn't a Catholic bashing conference by any means, but it was just a reminder. And so we were brought back to these important doctrines and not not uh, brought back to just the men, the reformers, Luther, Zwingli and Calvin, but to the scriptures that they use, because we always want to go back to the root of things and the foundation of things and see, well, what scriptures did they use to make their point um, to welcome this conference of 10,000 men on the light poles of the city? were the banners, we are Protestant, which I got a kick out of because I thought I bet the local Catholics really appreciate all these banners decorating their city. But in case you didn't know, you're a Protestant. You, everybody in here uh, is a Protestant. If you're not a Roman Catholic, and, and with the exception of the Orthodox Church, then you are a Protestant. And what we, we may not realize, but the way we do things... Why we do things and the, and the faith that we ascribe to 
is largely as a result of this Reformation and these people that went before us. The Reformation is an attempt to reform the church, to get us back to what God's word says and away from the opinions of men and the authority of man. And I'll talk uh, about that in just a second. The word Protestant basically means witness or testimony. So these are people that were giving testimony to the word of God and then they became known as protesters because they were protesting the doctrines that they thought were unscriptural. When it was all said and done, and and I am um, really abbreviating this, there are volumes written on the Reformation and even these things that I'm going to talk about this morning. Uh, But when it's all said and done, what exactly was the result of this time of Reformation? What doctrines were so important that they felt they needed to stand on and even give their lives for? Well, it's been condensed to what is known as the five solas. Latin was the language of that day in the church, and so everything was in Latin. The five solas, meaning alone, sola, alone. Um, The five solas were sola scriptura, scripture alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola fide or fide, by faith alone. Solus Christus, in Christ alone. And soli Deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. And so that's the salvation package right there. It's not from man. It's by faith, uh, by, through faith, by grace, through Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. The... During that time, um, the Pope has, or the teaching of the church actually even to this day, is that the Pope is the apostolic successor to Peter who was given the keys of the kingdom. And so he has um, equal authority with Scripture or kind of the final say in what Scripture says. And the former says, no, 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 the Scripture has the final say on what the Scriptures use. And by the way, that's what you're taught in this In this church, Scripture interprets Scripture. So there was just a lot of issues there. God gets the final word. So Scripture alone, grace alone. You can't add to what Christ has given you for salvation. You are saved by grace. And at that time and even today, there are teachings about your merits. You can bring works to the table that will help you out in the salvation process. You are merited or you have a little bit of money in your bank, spiritual goods or money in your bank, so to speak. They said, no, Scripture teachers saved by grace alone, through faith alone. It's not believing yourself. It's not trusting in your works. It's trusting in Christ alone for the glory of God alone. So what I want to do for the remainder of our time is just talk a little, take one of the solas and share some scriptures with you that John Piper shared with us about the importance of sola gratia or by grace alone, salvation by grace alone. Luther wrote lots of books. One of his favorite books was The Bondage of the Will. And there was a big debate in that day between Luther and another Greek scholar, Erasmus. Uh, How bound are we or can we bring anything to the table when it comes to the salvation process? What is the condition of our heart? Just how dark is it? How blind is it? How incapacitated is it? Are we free? Is there any freedom of the will to seek after the things of God? So, in essence, we can take partial credit 
for our salvation. Uh, why is this important? It's important for us because I think it will determine the degree to which we worship the Lord. In the sense that, do we think that God mostly saved us or partly saved us, but I have brought something to the table? Because if we think that God is just helping me out or giving me a step up or a little boost in this process, then that's how we're going to view this God of glory. But if we see him as if we see ourselves as utterly destitute and incapacitated in and of ourselves to come to Christ and to obey the Lord and to even have faith. And then we realize we are absolutely, totally dependent on an act from God and the mercy of God. Well, then we're going to worship him, I think, in a different light. So is our free, is our will free? Um, do we have this by free will, meaning this self-determination or decisiveness that we can act upon from within ourselves? Or does it have to come from outside? So just quickly, I want to give five teachings or scriptures that show the kind of bondage that we are in. And I will tell you up front that when I look at these, I never saw myself in this way. Even when I came to Christ, I knew I was a bad person and I had lots of wrong things that I had done. But I did not know by my own reasoning, my own feelings, just how destitute I was. Now, this is what God, this is what God is revealing to us about our own condition in his holy word. The five ways that we are in bondage. First, the bondage of legal, legal guilt and divine condemnation. So I'm going to give these and then share some scriptures with you. And I will work through these rather quickly. Romans 3, 9 through 11. The Apostle Paul says, What then? Are we Jew? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So Paul is saying that there's no distinction between any of mankind. They are all under the law. All have sinned. And therefore, every human being that ever was brought into this world is accountable to God for that sin, therefore, they're all under the judgment of God as lawbreakers. John three thirty six. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. The idea is this is the condition that we're born into. We are born into the wrath of God being upon us. Now, that's what drove me to Christ. It wasn't the love of God. I've said it many times. It was just knowing I'm doomed. I'm doomed. Doesn't take a genius to realize the things I've done in my life. If there really is a God, uh, he is pretty got to be pretty upset. And I'm doomed unless unless there's some change that takes place. Second, the bondage of love for the darkness. John three nineteen through 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness Rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So what happened? The light came into the world. Jesus 
is the light. He exposed himself. He basically announced his coming. Here I am. I am the light of the world. But the, the, the darkness didn't want anything to do with it. So it wasn't that, that, that God didn't extend his grace. It's that we reject it because we're living in sin. And it says, basically, we loved the darkness. We hated the light. You, you're not going to embrace something that you hate. And you're not going to reject something that you love. And so we say, no, I love my sin. I love who I am and what I'm doing. And I reject the light. Matter of fact, Jesus himself uses strong words as love and hate. And this represents, of course, all humanity. So this means that they're being controlled. We are being controlled by the preferences of our soul. Nobody can coerce them in that day or coerces us what we love or hate. It's how we're born. It's natural. We're born into this world with certain loves and hates. Some of us love and hate different things. Scripture says we all love darkness. We don't have to work at it. Uh, we don't have to make ourselves do it or work it up. It is already a part of who we are. And we are all culpable for what we love and what we hate. John five forty through 44 says, I do not receive glory from people. This is Jesus speaking. But I know that you do not have a love of God within you. 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God? Jesus is saying, there's really no room for me. Because what you want is just the praise of man. You want self-glorification. And that, that uh, recognition from men is so important to you. What they think about you and what they offer you, there's basically no room for me. You're not even interested in glorifying me because you want what the heart wants and what the will wants. Praise from men. Third, the bondage of hatred towards God. Romans 8, 6 through 9. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Well, who is in the flesh? All of mankind. As we are born under the wrath of God, we are hostile to God because it is in our Nature, we don't want to submit to God. A lot of times we read this and we try to think, well, that's just for the really bad people. I'm not that bad. But when you look at the standard that Christ sets or that God sets by his law, we fall way short. We like to think of ourselves of maybe just needing a little help. We fall way short of the standards of God. And we are hostile to him. There are areas in our hearts uh, where we just don't want to submit. Even the, the cutest little kid in the world and the most precious, unbelieving grandma that you've ever seen is hostile to God if they are unbelievers in their hearts. That's what Scripture teaches us. Uh, the first and greatest commandment is love God with all your heart. And we don't do that. We just break the most important commandment. Verse 9 goes on to say, uh, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. 
in the Spirit of God if the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So there's this bondage. And then fourth, the bondage of spiritual death. Ephesians chapter 2. We've been in Ephesians ever since I've been coming to this church in adult Sunday school. Just teasing, John. It's only been a few years, I think. Two years, one year. Uh, having a grand time. And we talked about this in Ephesians extensively. Come to adult Sunday school. Uh, this was our fifth Sunday on what it means to forgive. And to offer forgiveness. It's taken us five Sundays to work through this. Please come to adult Sunday school. You will be edified. Paul says you were dead in the trespasses, or we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Verse 3, whom, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now look at the, the, look at the way God sees us when he looks at us in our hearts and how we interact in this world. Do we see ourselves in that kind, same kind of light? Is there, are we on the same page? These are sons of disobedience and it's in our very nature. We do things because we're glad to do them. We don't submit to God because we're glad not to submit to God. We gladly serve ourselves or worship ourselves or worship the idols that we have. We're not forced to do this. There are things that come natural and that is one of them. And then lastly, the bondage of blindness, 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This goes along with what we have been hearing all along. Uh, it's perfectly natural to be, the, to be blind to the things of God. We hate them. We can't see them. We can't experience them. We don't want them. We're born blind, and we stay blind unless there's some kind of spiritual intervention. Second um, Corinthians four four, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. So we are born blind, and then Satan, just to give you an idea how wicked he is, here we are. We can't see anything, and just to make sure we can't see anything, he takes blind people and moves them even into darker places to make sure there's absolutely no way that any light will be shed into their light. Into their lives. So man's will is in this kind of bondage. This is what scripture is teaching us about the condition that we are born into. We may not like it. We may not be able to comprehend all of it. But if God is if God's word is our standard and rule for faith, what we're going to believe is true for us. And these are the scriptures that we have to wrestle with. Uh, it's our nature to not be bothered by these kind of things. But God is bothered. So is this how you pictured yourself all growing up or in your before Christ years? It is not how I pictured myself until I come to God's word and I hear what he has to say about how guilty it was. I mean, I thought, yeah, I knew I was guilty, but that guilty? I knew it was, I like darkness, but that dark? That blind? That dead, that condemned. Scripture says that we are in desperate bondage, incapacitated to do anything for ourselves in the area of seeking God. We don't need a helping hand. 
We don't, I got this, but I do just need a step up or a little boost or a little inspiration or a little dust or or an energy drink, a spiritual energy, whatever it is. uh, we, We have a tendency to think I've got this for the most part, but Lord, I need a helping hand. But what we need is absolute and total mercy. So the reason that this is important, I believe, is because if we look at our God as the God who helped us, he gave us a helping hand out of our bad time of life, and now I can do life a little better, then that's the kind of God we're going to worship, the God that helps. But if we realize that we were absolutely helpless, that we are, were under the wrath of God, And totally incapacitated, not wanting any help, not able to seek after it, not able to will it up as much as we may have wanted to. Then we're going to, when we cry out, we're going to cry out, what do we have? We didn't bring anything to the table. And when you have absolutely nothing to offer, then you realize that you are in great need of mercy, in great need of grace by grace alone. Sola gracia. That is how we are saved. If when we do the good things and when we have the faith, it is because God has mercifully produced it in us. We are not able to do that on our own. When you realize how much help you needed, you're going to worship God in a different way. Because without him, we are absolutely nothing. Now, let me close with this. Verse Fox's Book of Martyrs, I'll quote again, said about John Rogers. So he was brought the same day, the 4th of February, by the sheriffs towards Smithfield, saying the Psalm of Misere. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it sounded good enough to me. But what is the Song of Misere? It is Psalm 51. He is quoting Psalm 51. So what is he and turns out some of the other men that were martyred for their faith were quoting the same song. What could possibly come to your mind under these kind of conditions? Can't, I don't want to take the time to read it all, but just the first two verses as he walks to the flames. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He did not die in arrogance. He did not die in this lofty thought of look at the courage I am displaying for you, O God, as if he was something special, as if he had earned this place or this right, thinking his brave acts has given special standing before God. He died in utter humility, pleading for the mercy of God in Christ, because that's the only way it comes. He had nothing else to offer. By grace alone, I pray that that's the God that we worship in this congregation. The God that has completely, not the therapeutic God that helps us when we need to call him on the phone, I got this problem. But the God that completely rescued us and redeemed us and saved us. From his very wrath. To live as Christ. To die is gain. And may God bless the preaching of his word. 
I appreciate you investing in me for the conference. Perhaps there will be some more on the horizon. If you'd like to borrow any of these books, let me know. I haven't even written my name in them yet, so don't take any, please. (laughs) 